0: Yeah, the time is upon us. We put on the website that the interview with Stephen Harper would be our final one before the election, but Mr. Miller and I decided there was so much more we should slip in that, well, we're slipping it in. Starting with the Chambers brothers and moving into an email someone sent me in 2006, a Trump Trump supporter, long before there was a Trump, ironically, or should I say a political Trump, But my friend sent me, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That last part really kind of hit me, you know, about the, uh, the worst being full of passionate intensity. We'll have a thing or two to say in this program about, you know, what what could happen if armed people take to the streets to enforce their view that the election is being stolen and they've got to stop it. But you know, as grim as this may get, I do want to start out with a slight bit of levity. And note in relation to the fact that Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee has announced that he might leave America and return to Greece if Trump is reelected. We here at Radio Parallax do not want to see that become a reason to vote for Donald Trump. We thought that we should review some guests we've had on this program in the past because the things we were talking about back in 2008 back in 2006, in some cases back in 2004, sadly are still relevant. I'm going to ask Ms. McMillan to go back into our archives and pull out our interview with Peter Pringle, who wrote a book about the murder of Nikolai Vavilov, a Russian geneticist you may or may not have ever heard of if you didn't listen to our program. But the kind of pseudoscience that just about wrecked genetics in the USSR for a whole generation is just so reminiscent of the Non scientific PR, we've all had to contend with in 2020 regarding COVID 19. We're also going to pull up an excerpt from our chat with Chris Hedges titled American Fascists, the Christian Right and the War on America. We want to thank listener Daniel, who several weeks ago pointed out that we needed to air that interview in its entirety as it was so relevant today, 14 or so years later, sad to note. The kind of chicanery we fear will happen on election day was something we talked to Greg Pallast about more than once, and Mr. Pallas has agreed to come back to the program after the election. We hope to God that when he does, we won't be talking about the ongoing legal battle that's tearing the country apart and promoting violence in the streets. God, we hope so. We should pause to note that if you look at the electoral map, and boy, we've done a lot of that, it, it seems that in an honest tally, there's no way Joe Biden can lose. He is ahead in so many of the swing states that it would take, really, an electoral miracle, a rabbit out of a hat for Donald Trump to pull this off. Now, a lot of us thought that in 2016 as well, but if you take a good, cold, hard look at those poll numbers, you'll see that Biden is way ahead of where Hillary Clinton was at the same time four years ago. And, it is not 2016. It is 2020. The headlines are telling us that millions of voters are casting early ballots all across the country. I was stunned to see that in Texas, the the get-the-vote-out efforts, as of a couple days ago, topped 9 million ballots. That's more than we got in 2016, which was 8.9, with a couple days to go. To everyone's shock, I would say, it appears that Texas actually is in play. I don't think anybody would have foreseen that a year ago. If we were going to summarize our our election forecast, our thumbnail sketch, election forecast, we would say, assuming the polls are correct in those Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, it appears Biden is headed for victory. Now, it appeared that Clinton was as well, but Biden has much larger margins. If If he carries those three states... It doesn't matter if he loses Florida or Georgia or North Carolina or Texas, all of which shockingly are in play. Biden's looking pretty good in Arizona as well. For Trump to be reelected, it appears he has to take that out of the Biden column. Anyway, see for yourself. Go to a website like 270towin.com and play with the interactive electoral map. And I think you'll satisfy yourself that, in an honest tally, it's very tough for Trump to succeed. But then again, when you're dealing with Donald J. Trump, who expects an honest tally? Not us. I think we made mention last week of the documentary, Unfit, which takes a very hard look at the psychology of Donald Trump. I thought it remarkable that the American Psychiatric Association still can't seem to decide that psychopathy is an actual diagnosis. We had quite a talk about that with, uh, with uh, UC Irvine Professor Jim Fallon a couple years ago. He wrote a book about how he, oddly enough, turned out to be a psychopath. Although I think in Fallon's case, it was more like psychopath light. But the diagnosis they settled on was malignant narcissism. Arguing about the label is pretty much hair splitting. The point is, what does it mean? And they brought out a lot of psychiatrists who uh, talked about something we talked about in this show, uh, I guess earlier this year, the Goldwater Rule. Back in 1964, Barry Goldwater, candidate for the presidency on the Republican ticket, was pretty much slandered by a group of um, psychiatrists who really shouldn't have said what they did say about him. Goldwater sued, and he won. And the standard was then put down in psychiatry that you shouldn't diagnose someone unless you, um, you know, have examined the patient. But the psychiatrists in this documentary take pains to point out that there is so much data available of public statements, of tweets, of recorded press conferences, of interview after interview, that it seems pretty clear that a professional can take a look and render a judgment. The comparison they made in the documentary was that if an orthopedic surgeon is watching a football game and he watches a player go down with an injury, he is qualified to say based on what he's observed that, well, that's probably an ACL injury. They argue that it would be rather ridiculous to say that he can't make that statement unless he examined the patient and While it's true, he can't make the bulletproof diagnosis without an examination, he can make a pretty good guess at any rate. I highly recommend this documentary to you, dear listener, as much as we well as much as we didn't like say the Bush Cheney administration, liking neither George W. Bush nor Dick Cheney. We think that we're just in a different situation when it comes to Donald Trump. He has completely rewritten the book on what is acceptable behavior or what get what passes for acceptable behavior or what what he's given a pass on. Imagine somebody saying that Mexicans tend to be rapists. Imagine somebody in a campaign rally encouraging encouraging people to chant lock her up. Imagine saying that someone who is a POW is no hero because because he was captured. Imagine a president who during his presidency had a running tally taken on the things he said that were untrue or partly true to find that there were 20,000 such instances over a three-year period. I mean, that's 20 a day every day. As much as we found someone like George W. Bush or, or Dick Cheney distasteful, We are convinced that neither would have done the crazy things that Donald Trump has done during this COVID pandemic. During his term as president, George W. Bush got the ball rolling on uh, better monitoring in the U.S. from a public health standpoint to try and pick up a pandemic when it was incoming. And imagine just days before the election a president holding rallies where people are not masking up, they're not social distancing. And where the president is encouraging the crowd to chant Lock Her Up, in this case aimed at Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Imagine calling the government's top infectious disease expert a disaster. Imagine suggesting to the Attorney General that he lock up his political opponent in the presidential race. The New York Times, just before the election, suggested that we end our national crisis, calling him the worst president in modern history. The editors said that Trump has damaged our standing around the globe. He's abused the power of his office and engaged in rampant corruption and incompetent statecraft. He's a racist demagogue who has made America more polarized, more paranoid, and meaner. On November 3rd, they said voters must repudiate Trump and all he stands for. It's the first step in repairing the damage he has done. Writing in Politico.com, David Siders said don't count Trump out. Early Democratic gains could be offset by a Republican wave of in-person voting on Election Day. They note the Republicans did have a slight edge in new voter registration. Only a few points separate the two candidates in several swing states, said David Siders, and questions linger about the accuracy of polls and the number of shy Trump voters who might not talk to pollsters. Not something we should talk about. Back in 2004, when John Kerry had a 3% national lead in the exit polls, only to see that switch to a 2.5% deficit in the final vote count, the explanation favored by the powers that be was not that the exit polling was accurate and the vote count was altered, but rather the polling was wrong because for some reason, people, people who are conservative, they get shy when they're asked questions about who they're going to vote for. Well, we're certainly going to see, aren't we? Writing in the Washington Post, Philip Bump said, "This isn't in 2016. In that race's final days, undecideds shifted toward Trump, but polls show there are few undecideds in this race. Biden has far better favorability ratings than the divisive Clinton, and his lead has been much more stable." He noted that Trump can't catch Biden without stealing support from Biden, which he hasn't been able to do—not that he's tried. Matt Lewis in the Daily Beast said Trump isn't acting like he even wants to win. Instead of drawing in wavering voters, he's doubling down on unhinged tweets and offensive rhetoric while failing to negotiate a pandemic relief bill that would have aided desperate Americans. Anyway, we're taking all of these from the main story of the current issue of The Week magazine, which closed that section with a report from Tim Alberta, writing in Politico.com, who said, We're overthinking this campaign. The bottom line is this. Americans are sick of Trump's act. I've heard it from voters all across America, even MAGA loyalists, call his erratic behavior exhausting. Voters might have chosen Trump in 2016 as the candidate they'd rather have a beer with. But now, he's the drunk at the bar who won't shut up. After four years, Americans seem ready to call for the tab. Well, that may be, maybe... Maybe Mr. Alberta has gone across the country and seeing that uh, people are fed up, but I was looking at a social media outlet not an hour ago, seeing the proud postings of someone I know reasonably well at a MAGA hat wearing Trump rally here in the Sierra foothills. The turnout looked pretty decent and nobody in any of the pictures was social distancing or wearing a mask. Now, on this program for the past seven or eight months, we've been hitting this subject of uh, the great COVID delusion, <laughs> the, the nonsense being peddled by the administration regarding an actual pandemic on our shores. Uh, well, till we're blue in the face. We've also created a website, trumppandemic.net, which should have, well, everything you would, could ask for, we hope, as regards documenting that difference between reality and what the administration has said. And, you know, it's just speculation on my part, but I have a really hard time looking back over the years and thinking of any U.S. president who would have possibly acted the way Trump has acted. Not Nixon, not Carter, not Reagan, not Bush 41, not Bill Clinton, not Bush 43, certainly not Barack Obama. And by politicizing what had formerly been considered the world's best public health agencies our FDA, our our CDC, our Department of Health and Human Services. We've seen Trump do what he does everywhere, which is take out the people who are competent that might not be loyal to him and stick somebody in that will do what he wants and will tell him what he wants to hear. Writing about this in News Scientist magazine, Chelsea White said, quote, As the U.S. enters a third surge of coronavirus cases, the two agencies charged with shepherding it through the public health crisis have lost their biggest asset, trust. The impact could be catastrophic, with one expert warning that the country may be headed for a national security crisis. Both the FDA and the CDC rely on one common element, which is public trust and confidence says J. Stephen Morrison at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. That is their essential asset that they have to treat as precious, and they have to guard it and sustain it through all sorts of twists and turns. As we've seen, that's not very easy. Over the course of the coronavirus pandemic, a series of missteps by both agencies has resulted in a fractured approach to tackling the crisis. These missteps have come from within and have also been the result of political pressures and interference from the Trump administration. The article reviews how it was on the 19th of March when President Trump made the first of many mentions of hydroxychloroquine, suggesting that it should be taken as a treatment for COVID, and days later tweeted that a combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin could be quote, one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine, unquote. On the 15th of September, Trump said in an interview with Fox and Friends that a vaccine would be ready in four to eight weeks which would coincide with the election. However, the FDA has been holding its ground on that front. They've learned from some rookie mistakes and are now doing a good job at holding the line and preventing the White House from exploiting the FDA for political reasons, said Peter Hotez, who's co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development in Houston. Anyway, I'm not going to read the whole article to you, but I did like where it said, Before this year, the CDC was widely recognized as the gold standard of a high-quality public health agency. It was a repository of up-to-date information and statistics relied upon by doctors, researchers, and public health officials, but that has changed. Said Peter Hotez, we couldn't rely on CDC for our modeling. I basically gave up on CDC data about five or six weeks into the pandemic. And here we are just days before the election where we have a neuroradiologist who told Trump what he wanted to hear influencing policy a guy who's telling the president and the public that masks don't work, that we don't have any business testing people who are asymptomatic, and that lockdowns don't save lives, they kill people. Yours truly finds it truly, truly disturbing that here in the United States, we have a parallel situation to what was found in the old Union of Soviet Socialist Republics under Joseph Stalin. Let's go now to our interview with Peter Pringle from 2008, where we talked up what actually happened
1: in russia there were um uh, a few not many um geneticists in the the school of agriculture and agronomy and uh, and vavilov um, came out of that school and uh, pursued his his plant breeding according to mendel's laws now there were others who said who didn't believe in mendel's laws uh they thought they were particularly Stalin, for example, thought this was a a kind of a bourgeois plot um, (laughs) that uh, only helped those who wanted to produce master races, uh, like Hitler, for example. And um, so uh, those people uh, followed not Mendel, but Lamarck, who was a uh, a French botanist um, who believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which meant that if you could train, in a way, your plant um, to have um, a certain characteristic during its lifetime, then, then, then that would be inherited either by watering it better or putting in the sun or doing something which which, uh, which gave it these properties, that those properties would be inherited. Of course, it was nonsense. Uh, so a battle uh, was looming between the Mendelists on the one hand and the Lamechists on another.
0: And, uh, of course, uh, this, this story of Avilov really has, has two villains. Stalin is one, but we need to introduce the other one, the man who the other scientist who sort of Appealed more to Stalin's sense of what was proper political ideology and thus gain influence. Tell us, tell us a little bit about Trofim Lysenko.
1: Well, uh, Lysenko was—he um, was not an educated person. Basically, he uh, came from the Ukraine and um, he went to horticultural school, but he didn't get the scientific training um, that uh, that Vavilov had, uh, and he couldn't uh, speak any foreign languages. Uh, so he couldn't follow the science of genetics as it was developing in the West. And um, he came up with these, um, as it turned out, fraudulent and speculative claims um, that he could change crops by training them under new conditions of light and heat and, and uh, wetness. Um, and Stalin believed him. Uh, and that, uh, uh, as a result of that, Stalin began to arrest the geneticists, um, and throw them into jail.
0: Yeah, we should, I think, maybe, uh, I remember studying this, and and the the legendary tales of Lysenko, he would set up like an agricultural plant or an agricultural station somewhere, basically put sugar in the ground next to the corn with the idea that the corn would then be sweeter and pass that on to subsequent generations, which unfortunately does not happen in the real world.
1: Yes, that's right. There There were many things like that, exactly.
0: Anyway, the USSR was trying to learn how to do better plant breeding, and they had this guy Nikolai Vavilov that went all over the world gathering samples. He was a first-rate scientist, but although he was a very good geneticist, he wasn't, you know, was up on Marxist-Leninist theory as he needed to be, perhaps, because by 1932 when there were some crop failures in the USSR, Stalin started looking for somebody to blame. And I do want to pause right there to say, does this remind you of anyone? We hope it does. We hope, in fact, as you listen to this next part, you'll be thinking of how it is that for many months, they've been trying to frame the failures of the Trump administration on Anthony Fauci, rather unsuccessfully. Anyway, back to the USSR. This kind of picks up to about the 1930s. There's some some significant crop failures in the USSR. Economic mismanagement plays a hand in some of that in Stalinist Russia. But at this point, Stalin's looking around for some scapegoats.
1: Uh, the collectivization of the, of the farmland, of course, and the um, <coughs> destruction of the Kulak class, who were the competent farmers, if if you like, um, the ones who were doing the best. Um, and uh, Stalin got rid of them. And uh, so the the initial collectivization was a terrible failure, and there was a frightful famine um, as a result of it. Uh, and 1932 or three is the year we're looking at um, And Stalin, uh, as you say, wanted a scapegoat. So he ordered his uh, plant breeders, um, at that point headed by uh, Vavilov, um, to produce new types, new varieties uh, that would yield more within three years. And, of course, Vavilov knew perfectly well, as did any plant breeder, certainly those who were following Mendel, uh, that, that, that this was just simply completely impossible. Um, it took 10 to 12 years to perfect a new variety, uh, test it through the seasons, um, and so Vavilov then understood, I think, uh, that uh, the game was up, so to speak. Um, Senko, on the other hand, um, uh, a uh, an opportunist, if uh, if you if you want one, there jumped in and said, "Oh, I can do it. I can talk to these plants, and I can um, <coughs> give them some." Better light and uh, and uh, and uh, make them produce these uh, produce these new varieties in three years. Well, of course, it was complete nonsense when he said it, and in three years he hadn't done it. Um, but the die was cast. Basically, um, Stalin believed Lysenko wanted to believe Lysenko didn't particularly like um, uh, Vavilov because he came from the wrong class. He was a bourgeois person from pr- before the revolution, uh, and so. Uh, this was and, and this was really the beginning of the end and and it took three or four years. Uh, Vilov still trying to be nice to Lysenko, still trying to accommodate him. Um, many people have said, you know appease him um, and uh, bring him into the fold, uh, but it didn 't work.
0: And, and sadly, uh, as your book well documents, Vavilov is arrested and he never leaves custody.
1: That's right. He's um, interrogated. Uh, we know this because uh, uh, his son, uh, Yuri Vavilov, is still alive in Moscow. And if you're the direct descendant of a person who has been um, uh, murdered, is the word, by Stalin, uh, then uh, you can have access to your KGB and KVD file. Um, and from the file we were able to reconstruct exactly how he was arrested and what happened to him thereafter. He was interrogated for an entire year, um, often three or four times a day, and at the end of all this he was convicted of sabotaging uh, the Soviet Union's agricultural uh, project and also of spying for Britain. Of course, none of these things were true.
0: Well, it's also not true that Anthony Fauci has been a disaster, and the people in public health in this country are idiots, because they hold different views than those of Donald Trump. Now, we don't want to take this too far. It's pretty unlikely Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to wind up in a gulag. But I have to admit, I I, I do worry about some of the things we've seen in this country, We would remind you that eyewitnesses said that federal agents never identified themselves before killing Antifa activist Michael Renhall, raising questions about his death. He was wanted for the killing of a pro-Trump Patriot prayer rally-goer in Portland, Oregon. He had confessed to the killing, but said he did it in self-defense. He definitely was shot up by U.S. Marshals. A gun was later found in his pocket. Four officers of the U.S. Marshal Service sprayed him with 37 shots. Witnesses, including 21 of 22 people near the shooting who were interviewed by the New York Times, told Oregon Public Radio and the Times the agents gave Reinhold no warning. They just got out of the car and started shooting, said Garrett Lewis, described as a former U.S. Army medic. President Trump told supporters the officers didn't want to arrest him, adding they knew who he was. He also referred to it as Retribution. And, folks, this is just not how things should be done in the U.S. of A. I wasn't there. I'm not a witness. But what they're describing certainly sounds like an assassination. And I got about a three-minute clip from Chris Hidges, and we're up against it on time, so I'm going to put that off till after the break. We've got so many things we want to talk about, it's hard to keep it all straight. But here's the balls in the air as I see them. This election's going to depend upon voter suppression, first and foremost, on the mail-in ballots that were cast through the offices of the United States Postal Service and through good old-fashioned vote suppression. Of course, the sheer numbers of people that are turning out make it look as though the people that would like to suppress the vote have uh, got their work cut out for them. But we mustn't underestimate them, nor should we underestimate the ability of hackers, be they Russian-influenced or other malevolent uh, forces, hacking in to change the vote yes, we believe it can be done, or certainly causing problems with the voter registration rolls on election day for people that show up to vote and find out that their name and address have been changed. We think the Russians and other bad actors are going to use social media to the hilt. That's also been a proven avenue for voter suppression. Back in 2016, using the big data available to the tech giants, They were able to select out people who say were in favor of Black Lives Matter and encourage those people, above all others, to just simply not vote. It just wasn't worth their time. There's an alliance in this country between Silicon Valley and Wall Street, which is very worrisome, something we've talked about till we're blue in the face in this program, and we'll continue to do so. But using social media to mobilize armed protesters is something we need to talk about in the next segment. We're hoping for a definitive blue tsunami on election night to where no matter how you try and suppress the votes, no matter how you try and hack in, no matter how you use social media in a bad way, no matter who you mobilize out in the streets, it'll be reasonably clear that Trump has not been reelected. If it's not reasonably clear, this is going to be a court battle the likes of which we haven't seen probably in over a hundred years. Let's hope that doesn't happen. And let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got lots more. Stick around.